Back to Box Madness. Oh, yeah, we are back. We are doing it again. Doing it again. Welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will be taking you through our reading of Blood in My Eye by George Jackson uh, in just a little bit. But as we are wont to do, uh, we are mm-hmm. coming hot off the heels. Now, for you guys, it'll have been a couple weeks ago, but we're hot off the heels of just recording a full current events episode. And now there's still current events. Yes, this has been a, a lot this year. Just it's been a lot. Yep. 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 Um, so I, I, I mean, like we haven't even, I haven't remotely gotten the details from the hospital shooting in Oklahoma city. Mm, yeah. So that's we, actively we, happening. We, we, yeah. We can't even get into that one cause that's actively happening. We don't even have enough information to talk about that one yet. That's how much shit is happening. Um, let's see. We've already touched on the Colombian elections. So... Um, although I will say I did learn more about Rodolfo and, um, I knew he was right wing. I wasn't sure what to make of him. It turns out he openly praises Hitler and said, and in spite of his vice presidential candidate being an Afro Colombian woman, just as, um, Petro, uh, has Francia Marquez running with him, who's an Afro Colombian woman, an actual activist, not some right wing goon who happens to be Afro Colombian, um, like Rodolfo's vice presidential candidate. But Rodolfo, you know, Openly praises Hitler and says women shouldn't be in politics. So that's that's a nice little update. That's what I wanted to, to talk about with Colombia. But we'll we'll move on past that. Just know like that's a very good versus very bad situation. Obviously, limitations of electoralism. This is kind of more like Gabriel Boric, who already is having issues with not delivering on promises of scaling back violence against indigenous people in Chile, where he's like, you know, not in with Venezuela and Cuba and stuff, but he's definitely left wing and it's a huge improvement um, to one of the United States' most right wing puppets in Latin America. In fact, this is probably the most right wing and the biggest puppet, period, outside of Israel. Um, Moving on from that, yes, <laughs> stuff we didn't talk about. Yes, yeah, stuff we didn't talk about during our dedicated current events the last time we did one. Um, we have the uh, absolutely disgusting use of the gay slash trans panic defense that went down in mm-hmm. Virginia, where you had mm-hmm. a uh, a gentleman named Ishmael Etute. Uh, yes, uh, went on went on Tinder. Match with a person uh, who presented as Angie, um, went there, had sexual relations, came back a month later, beat the man to death, mm. and then got acquitted. There is yes. no justification. They literally said that, oh, they, he had a knife in the house. That's the defense, that it was self defense. It was straight up and down transparent because there was no other reason for him to go there in the first place there was no justification there was no nothing and this happening right as as pride month is starting is equally egregious but the whole thing is just gross it's just disgusting it is the fact when when people are talking about you know you're seeing all this discourse if you're so twitter doomed as i am you see enough discourse regard you know the uh, you know have kept comedians that are bringing on tr- doing trans targeted humor right now call it quote-unquote humor um and it, oh yeah that's a group that needs punching down to and then this kind of stuff happens i mean what other group has a defense built into the legal system of you can just kill us because we are who we are um it's disgusting and and ew, i have i have no other words than disgusting for it yeah. Um, um, piggybacking fun and exciting things that are also going down at the beginning of Pride Month that should happen only in a bad satire. Uh, David, what what's Jill Biden up to? Oh, uh, well, the U.S., so the Postal Service, it's still federal, federal um, U.S. stamps. There's a commemorative Nancy Reagan collection that was announced today, and it was announced... Um, for like immediate approval by Biden on the day of, and Jill Biden is going out to endorse this. Um, this is the first day of Pride Month. Nancy Reagan, uh, you know, as well as 
anything from the food pyramid to any other right-wing bullshit that she did on her own and stood by her husband for. Very famously, uh, Ronald Reagan and, and, you know, largely with the support of Nancy Reagan, ignored the AIDS epidemic in the United States. Back when it was considered, it was called GRIDS at the time. It was believed to be just a disease for gay people. Um, and of course, this, you know, negatively affected all medical treatment of gay people because there was the, the fear of AIDS, right? It's bloodborne illness. Um, and so, I mean, it was basically a genocide. Mm-hmm. of LGBTQ2 plus people. Um, and she gets a commemorated the first day of Pride Month. So I, I don't know how people, I don't know how people came this far defending Democrats as left wing for so many other things. But it's just, that's in your face. Yeah. Like, how do you, it, that's, it, it's just, I, I can't even imagine the enormous slap in the face that is. And that's just among the reasons not to do this because, you know, Nancy Reagan was a ghoul. And this is supposed to be the other party, right? You know, Democrats are supposed to be the opposition to Republicans. But time and time again, they laud them. They have the same policies. They are Republicans. They're, yeah. And they love bipartisan things. They love crossing the aisle. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's their favorite thing in the world to cross oh. that aisle. They wish they could live over there. That's It'd right. It'd be much easier to just stay on that side of the aisle and, and be who you are, really. But no, no, they must come mm-hmm. back. Um, moving on from that horrible piece of, uh, news that we didn't want to deal with to another horrible piece of news that nobody wants to deal with. Uh, let's talk about celebrity tabloid trials. These are fun. They're Mm -hmm. fun, gang. They're good. They're healthy. Um, and we just had the biggie, uh, go down between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And the result was depressingly predictable in a very, very damaging way. David? Yeah. So just brief overview. We don't have to get into too much of this. Uh, pretty much Johnny Depp filed for defamation because Amber Heard wrote about, wrote about as her personal experience of being a sexual assault survivor, did not name Depp. No. Okay. Um, and because of that, he was able to sue for defamation. Uh, he sued for, I think, like 30 million or, or something 50. like that. Okay. 50 million. Um, she, of course, countersued for a hundred million for, you know, slandering her and this whole thing because it, it was very clear what this was going to be, right? This was just going to be a big slam fest on her. So anyway, um, this was something that, you know, was, was largely funded and, and, and heavily backed by Shapiro and, and the Daily Wire. And so you saw it the same places you see Shapiro's bullshit and Crowder's bullshit and Peterson's bullshit pop up, right? It popped up on social media, especially pushed by YouTube. And anything that was popping up there wasn't like just updates from the trial. It was Amber Heard caught lying by lawyer, blah, 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 right? Um, and so this was just a huge smear campaign. This was already difficult for survivors to have to sit through and, and rewatch, you know, part of these, these things that protects, um, sexual violence is, uh, the perpetrators a lot of times, you know, the, the victims don't want to have to go through the court process. It's very painful to have to relive it. And that lets, uh, people get out of it. And so, you know, because of Depp here, she's being drugged through reliving this when she didn't ask for it. She was, you know, she wasn't prosecuting him and doing anything to cause this. Um, then with all this comes down, the decision inexplicably, when you look at the evidence, it's very clear that everything that she said was true. Everything she said Johnny Depp did to her was true. And, and it was also, you know, very clear that the article didn't name him at all, right? And other people were connecting the dots. He got awarded $10 million plus was supposed to be 5 million in damages. It came out to like 300,000 because there was a state law to prevent that bullshit. Um, and then, you know, of her countersuit of $100 million, she only got $2 million back. So, effectively, she had to pay him $8 million, assuming she doesn't appeal this and live through it again, to have her name smeared across the sky. And the important part is it's a technical win in a case for someone talking about their own experience publicly and not even naming him. So, it's basically a threat to any survivor that speaks out ever because now there's a court precedent for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is ugly and gross and and just going to set set this set the movement back to try and mm-hmm. hold these predators accountable um even further than it already has been and that's that's just it 
it's sad. And, and yeah, I mean, Me Too is already limited, but you know, it's it's public outcry, and public outcry has some level of power. And it was great to see people use it and and try to speak out and speak up and and give power back to survivors. But it was always going to be limited in use. And now all of the people with all of the time and all of the money to figure out all the bullshit strategies are using all their time and all their money for these bullshit strategies and basically pushing back against Me Too because it doesn't serve them. Yep. And last but not least, in incredibly depressing current events, we have the Supreme Court doing what they do and Mm -hmm. gutting some more uh, fundamental rights from human beings. Uh, And this time, they decided that uh, in a in a case, we'll I'll I'll grab the details here in just a second. uh, That being innocent no longer good enough for uh, for for getting off of off out of prison or off of death row. Uh, neither of these things apparently being innocent is enough for because they may be, according to our fine justice Samuel Alito, an affront to the state's process of justice. Yeah, it's coming back to states' rights again, and this is exactly what we were worried about when we saw Roe v. Wade turned around. You know, states' rights has been a large talking point. Um but the two things that'll get attacked is one, there'll be some pull of states' rights in court. They basically telegraph that they can do that and they felt that they got away with it so they can get away with it. Um, and then, you know, they're going to attack the, the 14th Amendment, right? Mm-hmm. Which <laughs> that's, that's the, the big 13th, 14th, and 15th have always been the right wing's enemy. They, they abolished slavery and 14th was the one written with vague enough language that was used for other civil rights, including, of course, Roe v. Wade. Um, and so if that precedent doesn't matter, you know, now they can go after the 14th, anything given by the 14th amendment and they can go after, um, anything, you know, anything they don't, they don't like basically. Um, so they're going to, they're going to plug it a state's rights and, and run it right down. Um, but basically it was, you know, before you could appeal and if there was overwhelming evidence, um, you, you could, you could get, um, a, a death row, you know, sentence commuted, right? Which is very important. I mean, it's something like what eleven percent are commuted or are found innocent later, yep. right? That and that's just the people that that they catch in time and get a good ruling on, um, you know, before they die and they find the evidence for, right? Uh, that doesn't mean, of course, every other prosecution that goes through is is correct. Um, so it's an absurdly high number, and now they can't even appeal it because you'd be basically appealing it on. Uh, grounds that you, you know, you were not given good representation by the state, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're due good representation by the state. They think that's the, the Fourth Amendment says. I thought that was search and seizure. No, I don't fucking know. Oh, okay. That's search and seizure. I don't know. I don't, um, I don't give a shit about that piece of paper. But basically, you know, you're, you're due, um, capable representation, right? Um, now that, whoops. Oops, the doodles. <laughs> you get shit representation. It's over. Bye. It just, there's no, everything that was considered a civil right was a facade anyway, but at least it saved lives in the interim, even if it didn't really give the rights it claimed to do that much for people like it claimed. But when they're stripped away, all those lives that they saved, even not being that great, are, are now not going to be saved, and it is terrifying. Yeah. It's, it's, again, they're, the court is very effectively doing what it is historically known to do, which is curtail rights just as far as they possibly can in any given moment. Um, yeah, if anything, if anything is socially accepted or written into law, and they just want to change the social norm or destroy that law on precedent of a ruling saying that law doesn't apply or doesn't supersede the Constitution, they just get to do it. And very clearly, the Constitution is whatever they, they want, whatever make, they, they want. Can and make they can make it up as they go on the fly. Mm-hmm. Everything benefits them. Nothing, nothing actually contradicts them. It's like ultimate debate bro right. hours. It, it it is if they feel like you know precedent is good enough, they just get to make something new, right? And if they don't want to make something new, even if the ruling is absolute bullshit, they can just go well precedent mm-hmm. until that precedent it's, it's doesn't suit them, which you could say which you have with Roe. And then again, the second yeah. the precedent doesn't suit them, oh well, precedent doesn't really mean anything. It was it was it wasn't in line with this particular line of thinking that we that we stringently mm-hmm. adhere to when it's convenient. Exactly. It's just, it's a load of bullshit to make sure that our democracy that was never democratic is for fucking sure not democratic. Every single time. Uh, that being said, we have condensed our current events into 15 minutes, which is good for us. I, that was for, that was some <laughs> heavy, heavy lifting we had to do there. Um, 
which means we are ready to jump into the work for this week. We are jumping in again in Blood in My Eye by George Jackson on page 144, first paragraph in. The finished product, the actual fascist arrangement, is diametrically opposed to its original ideology. The regime turns openly traditionalist and idiots like Mussolini receive the favor and compliments of other idiots like President Roosevelt, Bernard Shaw, DuPont, Kennedy, and H.G. Wells. This stems from an inevitable conflict between the notion of a new spiritualistic man and the theory of the ethical state. The ideals of obedience and creativity, authority and freedom are so contradictory of each other, so mutually exclusive, that the ideology of fascism could never be taken seriously. The pseudo-intellectual origins of fascism can be traced all the way back to ancient Greece. The German National Socialist apologist Alfred Baumler and expressionist Gottfried Benn both recognized Hegel, as did some of the Italian intellectuals and Eastern fascists. The Western Europeans, however, favored the primitive withdrawn ideals of Nietzsche or a confused combination of Nietzsche and Hegel with a bit of Plato's philosopher king added for window dressing. Actually, there have been as many different fascist ideals and arrangements as there have been fascist societies, which brings us to the relevant point of inquiry. The importance or form of a particular political regime can never be understood simply as it stands alone. Its social and economic past must be investigated and clearly defined before the distinctive being of the political realm takes shape. Very material analysis there. I I was going to say there is George Jackson Marxist right there. Very material analysis right there. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that German and Italy reached nation-state status. Their heavy industrial sectors were rapidly expanding and coming into conflict with the traditionalist economic sectors. Though there were some clashes of interest within the extended family of the ruling classes at this point, or at the point of the emergence into Western bourgeois culture, the section controlling the largest shares of the GNP in all cases finally succeeded in gaining an even greater hold over the direction of the economy with class interests generally working a compromise. The final result always involved a higher degree of centralization of power and control. I term this contrapositive mobilization. It occurs when the capitalist industrial sector of a particular society succeeds in altering the pre-existing equilibrium in its favor. The period in question was characterized by the movement of the masses from the traditional agriculture sector sector into the sweatshops, large and medium, of the cities. A policy was designed by this capitalist class to limit the range of choices of the newly mobilized masses. But the specter of communism was haunting Europe. The working masses began to organize and exert increasing influence in the realm of politics. This we will term positive mobilization. So a three-sided political struggle opened the 20th century. Actually, it was a two-sided struggle, the proletariat against the working class. Against the ruling class, apologies. A multitude... Yeah, I was going to say the proletariat is the working uh, you class. You know, words, talky, bad me, <laughs> no goody. Uh, a multitude of conflicts existed within the ruling class, particularly between the older traditionalist sectors and the manufacturing class. Within these two factions, there were a number of separate interest groups. The corporative ideal had its roots in this conflict. Elitist conservative economists like Pareto theorized around such concepts as governing elites and general equilibrium. The object, of course, was to diffuse the positive mobilization of the working class. The system itself was ostensibly designed to balance the interests of all economic classes and substructural groups. However, in fact, its principal purpose was to check the growth of the Vanguard Party's influence on the working class. In its beginning, especially in Italy, it was too vague and difficult to control. General equilibrium was never reached and class struggle went on unabated. Class consciousness sharpened and the old bourgeois democratic states, torn from within and in conflict with each other, rushed toward their own ruin. There is another form of mass mobilization that has strong socioeconomic significance. It lies between positive and contrapositive mobilization. It involves the men who were uprooted to serve in nation-state wars. Those who were recruited from the agricultural sector generally gravitated to the cities after their release, further dislocating the economy in favor of the modern sector. The traditional agriculture sector was forced to mechanize, modernize, and pull marginal land out of production. In some areas, agriculture collapsed altogether. The result was the need to import foodstuffs and other agricultural products. This may or may not have damaged the overall economy, but in any case, it represented another function turned over to the modern sector. 
After World War I, international capitalism went through an expansion phase of the business cycle. At its base were the regenerative effects of war on capitalist production and speculation. But the boom was brief. The Great War had taken the whole business of destruction of surplus to the point of diminishing returns. The years 1920 to 25 were spent in recession and depression across the Western world. The few years that followed, from 1925 to 1929, business roared back to recovery and expansion. Industrial manufacturing around the Western world and parts of the Third World, Japan, Argentina, Brazil, increased by 25%. The volume of world trade increased accordingly. However, an increase in the arts of agricultural production under the strain to modernize without a corresponding increase in the ability of the great laboring masses to buy back what was being produced precipitated a sharp fall in the price structure of foodstuffs in one of the world's largest agricultural centers, the United States. It was under consumption, not overproduction, and it led to the fatal stock market crash of 1929. The whole Western world went into recession and deep depression. Mm -hmm. Two countries were little affected by the general breakdown. Russia, which had taken itself off the wheel with a successful socialist revolution, and Italy, which had established a strong economic centralization that tended to close her economy off from the other bourgeois states. Italy had already established fascism shortly after World War I, during the 1920-25 economic crisis. That war had mobilized millions of Italians, most of whom were uprooted from over-traditionalist sectors of the proletariat. They had gone through the changes that most other Western countries were about to adopt. The key element that made the economic policy of fascist agreements unique was the emphasis on reform through government intervention. The opposite of Adam Smith's invisible hand working to coordinate economic activity. The opposite of the French revolutionary battle cry, laissez-faire. David, do you want to take over? Uh, sure. And before we go into that, too, I hope people are hearing like some of these similarities to, to now where you're hearing. Obviously, there was the fighting and the Great War and the ballooning of, of troops. And if you know anything about fascist Italy, obviously, the military was incredibly glorified had special you know government supports things like that that should sound very familiar in the era of the war on terror and we've seen just a massive expansion of military you know veterans and veterans relatives and glorification and all of that yeah big business was in a crisis of course after the short boom following world war one the giant cartels and the national industrial and financial monopolies were starved to the bone in both periods of fascist rearrangements, the early 20s and all of the 30s. This gave the movement its seemingly middle-class antecedents. Where large-scale manufacturing was not in complete control, its straining to emerge as the dominant force within the economy was resisted by the petty bourgeois, the landed class, and the medium proprietor. Here we see fascism in its out-of-power stage one. We hear its language sounding deceptively anti-capitalist, parasitic capitalism, illegitimate capital, rapacious capital, etc., etc. Crony capital. This was, yeah, crony cat. Exactly. Um, this was true in Italy and with early fascism in Falange, Spain, and in Germany. Mussolini, who set up the first successful fascist regime, was a man trained all of his life in the revolutionary tactics and strategy of scientific socialism. His department from the International Socialist departure. Movement dated from... I'm sorry, departure. <laughs> dated from... <laughs> damn it. Dated from... Uh, Stated from the moment he gave his unreasonable support to a nation-state war in which the working class was one or of one or more nations was manipulated into the murder of the working class of other nations by the ruling classes of their respective states. His opposition to the Socialist Party and his participation in reformist capitalism were no doubt due to the factionalism and basically reformist attitude of the Socialist Party. In spite of the fact that the Socialists won 156 seats on the chamber in the elections in 1919, over 50% more than the next largest political party, the Catholic Popular Party, and won majorities of the council's 2,202 communes and 26 provinces, they were 8,507 communes and 69 provinces, in the general administration elections of the following year, and in spite of the fact the Socialist General Confederation of Labor had grown from 300,000 members before World War I to almost 2.5 million members in 1920, 
The socialists still seemed powerless to solve the nation's economic problems with the promised revolution. That is the longest sentence in the history of time. Good Lord, George. It, get 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 some get some it, periods in there. It is, but he's well studied and you can see where again, you know, I don't know how much we we really agree with him on um Allende here because obviously we've seen how things played out there. Mm-hmm. Um and and he didn't. I mean, Allende was up at the time. But um, you know, he's, he gets that, that hatred because I, I think he noticed such a pattern, right? We've talked about it with, with Kautskyism and that affecting Germany and was it Sweden or fin- it was Finland? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finland. Yeah. Germany and Finland. And of course, you know, where that went. Um, but also now he's seeing it, you know, the same kind of thing, right? Electoral communism in Europe leading to a lack of revolution and the ushering in of fascism in in Italy. So, you know, he sees a clear pattern. Um, And it's the same pattern that Stalin observed when he said social democracy is the left wing of fascism. Yep. And I do think it's important to point out that uh, we've been missing out on something when we're naming our parties um, that the Catholics apparently nailed down. They called themselves the Catholic Popular Party. If you just put popular in the name, you have to be, right? Like It's in the name. It's right there. Well, I mean, you have to specify other details. This is opposed to the unpopular Catholic Party. <laughs> That's what I want so, to know. You know. Was there an un- was there another Catholic Party, and they they just had a split, and they're like, "We're going to be the popular ones." Ha ha! I'm a star belly snitch. <laughs> That's a whole Nintendo Switch begs the question: Is there a Nintendo top and Nintendo bottom? <laughs> but <laughs> all right, In apologies 19- for the diversion. <laughs> Sorry. In 1920, the Socialist Party seized control of all of the nation's steel manufacturing plants, but incredibly returned them to the private interests. Several accounts claim that the workers couldn't run the plants, but if the makers of steel can't make steel, dot, 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 (laughs) question mark. Love you, George. (laughs) Obviously, it was a problem of direction and management in the Vanguard Party. There were strikes, slowdowns, lockouts, and the kinds of disorders that precede revolution, or counter-revolution. In the years following the war and during the early depression of the 1920-25 to Italy, it could have gone either socialist or fascist. There were partisans enough in both parties to lead the uprooted, disintegrated society into a new direction. The difference was in the nature of the leadership, along with a question of who would be willing to commit their whole fortunes and futures to the battle. This is another little feather in the, in the hat of maybe reading Gramsci, because you can see how much that influenced George Jackson. Yeah. Um, Mussolini took his black shirt army and moved to the fight, killing and suppressing his opposition for the interest of an alarmed industrial traditionalist elite. He was well-educated in the science of positive mobilization, which made him the natural architect of a contrapositive mobilization intended to defuse the working-class movement. He seized power in 1922, heavy quotes on seized power, with the full support of the northern industrialists, the petty bourgeois, and the older traditionalist uh, agrarian interests. <laughs> Again, sounds a lot like the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. The 1921 elections left his party with only 35 seats out of a possible 535 in the parliamentary body. But by applying violence judiciously and scientifically as he had learned from Lenin, he was able to force the abdication of the king and the constitutional monarchy and form the first political regime representing the new direction of a capitalist development. Eyes right, he pumped bullets into the old left and new life into capitalism. The people were to exist solely for the state, the ruling class. This was the very antithesis of socialism. This period marked the second phase of fascism, the dark night, when it is still insecure. But it went in to develop a closed economy with directed investment in public works projects. It proceeded to fill the economic vacuum with surplus capital and supranationalism. Believe, fight, obey. State-protected industries, mainly in munitions and shipbuilding. Italy extended her power facilities and opened new marginal agricultural land for its new slaves. New educational facilities and new educators. Out of 1,250 university professors, only 12 refused to take the academics oath of loyalty to the regime in 1931. That is a staggering number. We're also part of the reforms. Taken altogether... 
the reforms turned out to be extreme reaction. The government of 1870 had seized the Papal States. The regime brought back the old religion. In 1929, in spite of the unrewarding experiences of World War I, the regime was allowed to make war again in Africa, in Europe. This marked the third face of fascism, in power and secure. The point here is that fascism emerged out of weakness in the pre-existing economic arrangement and in the old left. And the weakness must be assigned to the vanguard party, not the people. The People's Party failed to direct the masses properly with positive suppression of their class enemies and their goons. Mussolini was able to proclaim that fascism held the only solution to the people's problem by default. Fascism, the new arrangement, the rearrangement, the strengthening and reforming of laissez-faire competitive capitalism, was anti-socialist from its inception. It attempted to conceal the reality of class struggle by disguising itself as a new solution to quote-unquote national problems, by deifying the interests of the whole state, which turned out to be the interest only of the state's ruling classes. And I, I want to put a couple of pins in there really quick. So first and foremost, before Mussolini did this, there was no fascism. There was reaction several times, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was, we, we mentioned votapartism, um, it what some people call because of this, how Bonaparte, you know, seized power as the enlightened despot um, in France after the the French liberal revolution. We've seen monarchy. I mean, we've seen this kind of central thing before. We've seen reactionary restorations um, and counter revolutions before, but we've never seen fascism. So the next phase of fascism we see now won't necessarily call itself fascism, right? It could call itself something completely different, some new phenomenon, because. The point is that it's right wing, is that it upholds capitalism when capitalism is in crisis, and it does it by deifying the state. This is the importance of nationalism. Again, this is something we see profoundly, especially in the Republican Party now, right? Mm-hmm. The extreme jingoism, okay? Um, and it does it by being the alternative that's not the other two, right? If you establish, you know, socialism, bad, 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 or, you know, you just have no leader in the socialist group and liberalism is failing – it's got an outlet somewhere, mm-hmm. right? And so it's going to outlet violently managed capitalism because the true laissez-faire is, is can't exist. It fails. Yep. Fascism is always a response to a threat to the establishment. Any anti-establishment actions taken by the strictly political arm of a forming fascist arrangement are simply attempts to centralize or upstage the capitalist industrial sector either to establish it, as in Spain, or modernize it, as in the cases where marginal productive interests are absorbed or destroyed by the arrangement. It is significant to note that no fascist regime in power has advocated the abolition of any form of private ownership. The fascist regime and private ownership work hand in hand. No modern political regime can exist for long without the cooperation of those who control the means of production. The shock troops of fascism on the middle political, mass political level are drawn from the members of the lower middle class who feel an upward thrust of the lower classes more acutely. These classes feel that any dislocation of the present economy resulting from the upward thrust of the masses would affect their status first. They are joined by that sector of working class which is backward enough to be affected by nationalistic trappings and the loyalty syndrome that sociologists have termed the authoritarian personality. One primary aim of the fascist arrangement is to extend and develop this new pig class, to degenerate and diffuse working-class consciousness with a psychosocial appeal to man's herd instincts. Development and exploitation of the authoritarian syndrome is at the center of totalitarian capitalism, fascism. It feeds on a small but still false sense of class consciousness and the need for community. The collective spirit of fascism is a morbid phenomenon that grows out of the psychopathologic pathology of mob behavior. Again, you know, it's the petty bourgeois and the upper, you know, kind of skilled working class, right? Worried about class mobility catching up to them. They've always got to be above someone. This is the same thing that whiteness did um, with the abolition of slavery and, and the poor whites participating in the formation of, you know, the racialized states of the of what was left of the Confederacy and, and the downfall of Reconstruction. Um, you saw it in fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Um with, you know, of course, the small business owners, the, the landowners, um, and of course, in, in um, these cases as well, you know, military and police. Um, and you see it, you know, in United States where 
the Trump voters, the overtly fascist people that are joining the Proud Boys, you know, come from where? Suburbia, right? They're the small business owners. They're the cops. Uh, they're the upper middle class veterans. They're, they're the, the, you know, high end earners, right? This is where fascism comes in because what they see is the entire economy slips because, um, you know, I mean, liberalism can't even hold up to itself. They don't even have to slip personally, and they see any hint of upward mobility from someone who's previously below them, and all of a sudden they feel economically threatened just from the general economic tension, even if it's not affecting them, and they feel that threat is coming from the bottom, and all they need is someone to point the finger out and assure them, yes, that's the case. And the very powerful people that can very easily purchase a very loud voice box are going to tell them that relentlessly. Mm -hmm. It's every... Every single time, and it's 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 a mm-hmm. pattern we're, and then, we're we're seeing play out very very. And again, it's the sad part is we have the blueprints. We see where this came from. We know yeah. how it's happened in the past. So so watching it happen in slow mo now in the present is all the more disconcerting. It's it's like we learn nothing, and it's because collectively as a society we don't know how it happened in the past or when it comes to it we don't care because we've been so propagandized against socialism that this is still the default mm-hmm. right um and that's that's kind of why you see it come out in in slow motion but we need to direct the mass because the other thing too and you see this you know very much with the um you know, with the United States, and you saw it with Germany because they had just unified. I mean, Germany and Italy had recently unified as countries, mm-hmm. just relatively, you know, people were still in their lifetime had non unified countries. And so they had a strong sense of nationalism from that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, you know, the, the, the great wars. And so when community was lacking, because capitalism destroys community and the capitalist hardship further disintegrates community from stress, addiction, um, things like that, it's, it's going to leave people needing a community, need to belong. And it's very easy to tell people, well, you belong to the country when they've been pumped their whole life. They belong to this great country that's been formed for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that you see, you saw in Italy, you saw in Germany, you see here in the United States. And those are why those are the, the standout, you know, fascism. Why you don't think of like phalangists. Spain and the Axis powers, right? You think of fascism, you think Italy, you think Germany, you think Japan, you think modern United States. Israel, because I mean, I mean, Israel, Israel fits into it, you know. Yeah, um, because they're recently formed nations, but they're also, uh, you know, white supremacist metropoles, and you have that combination, and it's going to lead to a very easy feed to nationalism. Yep. With each development in the fascist arrangement, the marriage between the political elite and the economic elite becomes more apparent. The integration of various sectors of the total economic elite becomes more pronounced. The Romanian Iron Guard was no exception. It would have eventually bedded down with the owners and financiers and integrated the archaic sectors of the traditionalist capitalist elites with the modern sectors that it had not encountered had it not encountered the Red Army. The generals and colonels of the various Latin American fascist regimes are attempting contrapositive mobilization and functioning as an instrument to balance the interests of the traditionalist with the more modern sectors of the neocolonial nations. It is very misleading to regard them as the ruling class of such nations, or to consider them as part of the populistic movement, as in Romania and Spain. Part intervention... State intervention simply serves the best interest of a diminishing capitalist ruling class by restructuring it and destroying the people's labor movement. Capitalist political regimes cannot exist of their own. Without the support of government, capitalism simply could not prevail. Peron was a fascist. Peron, sorry, was a fascist. The PC worked out between labor and owners was subtle and disguised, but nonetheless fascist in that it appeased and diffused the workers' resentment of the non-worker and affected a quiet, efficient, counter-positive mobilization. Peron maintained an apparent popular appeal throughout this year, throughout his years as head of state because of the Vanguard Party's willingness to settle for reformism and tokens in a less-than-junior partner relationship with capital. His arrangement of the fascist state was indeed singular. Like the USA, the original structure of the society in which he had to work his scientific manipulations had only one available sector large enough and uprooted enough without strong left direction to carry his movement, labor. 
Perón, the fascist, found his strongest support in labor. He was finally deposed when he lost the favor of the economic elite. At heart, all fascist manipulators are elitist and revere private ownership. They are backward and reactionary to the ultimate extreme of self-destruction. Perón might have held on to his position had he chosen to serve the laboring class honestly and make it a genuine power base for society, one which truly embraced the interests by nationalizing the productive facilities and turning them over to labor's management. But fascists would rather die or flee than support the total revolution, so they must be slain. Yeah, and since, before we move on away from the the paragraph that mentions Perón, for people who aren't familiar with Juan Perón, he came to lead Argentina basically right at the end of, of World War II. Um, and, and he was a brutal fascist, uh, but he also is the reason why Argentina has so many Nazis. He was the one that like openly welcomed them in as, as uh, like being the haven of Nazis. Uh. So, yeah, so he greatly, greatly shaped Argentina, white, uh, Argentina, Argentinian white supremacy to take a, a different shape than other Latin American countries with similar histories because of the influx of Nazis. That is very good context. Thank you very much. The very first step in establishing the whole interest of the state, quote unquote, the combine, the corporate state, is to dismantle the working class movement and replace it either with a state controlled organ or no organization at all. The corporate laws passed in Italy in 1934 served only to sanction the complete destruction of the proletarian movement. At the same time, they set up an automatic defense mechanism against future labor activity. In disputes, labor was represented by men sworn either to the state or without the skill and intelligence to affect labor's demands. The manufacturing class had long since literally married into the regime. In Italy, the fascist party cadre spread throughout the nation, organizing people left aimless by the failure of the positive mobilization of the socialist vanguard parties. People who had dropped out, defected, people who had become uprooted and unemployed either by the war or the deflated economy. This organizing must be considered contrapositive mobilization in that its intent was to inflate the capitalist economy and deflate the workers' and people's influence and control over the economy. With easy credit, inflationary financing, and increased government sponsorship of public works projects, fascism in Italy, Germany, and Japan succeeded in reconstructing capitalist productive institutions and traditional property relations. After the takeover, Italy had recovered rapidly. Italy recovered rapidly from 1920 to 25 post-war depression. The ordinary complexities created by inflationary budgeting did not immediately manifest themselves because of the pre-existing state of the economy. The untapped productive factors, capital and labor, were grinding to a standstill. Cost of living and cost of production under those circumstances did not immediately rise to the point of crisis, diminishing returns for capital, decrease in real wages of labor. Later, in both Italy, 1925 to 26, and Germany, 1937 to 38, this inflationary budgeting showed damaging trends and set off a chain reaction in Germany that may have eventually led to its downfall. However, the heart of the fascist economy is an attempt to con- at control through centralization, monopoly capital control, price fixing, wage freezes, and carefully balanced foreign trade. The first currency crisis, stimulated by Italy's inflationary policies, initiated in 1925, resulted in the destabilizing of the lira by decree in 1927. A controlled deflationary period followed, affected through the banking systems which the regime influenced by decree or advice. Private interests protected themselves from totally destructive competition <laughs> by using the regime as referee. After the Great Depression, yeah, yeah. I, I do gotta say, I, I wonder why he, he's so punchy and he puts so many things in quotes and he left advice there, just <laughs> matter of fact, like decree or advice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After the Great Depression and the international rise of fascist states by default, refinements in its simple currency control methods were introduced. The replacement of competition with cooperation among the private interests became more standardized. The Germans realized that inflationary currency control would have little real effect on the expansion of heavy industry without also controlling the capital market. Direction of investment was also a key factor in the arrangement. Again, the regime functioned as a centralizing, mitigating influence. Real wages began to fall and industrial production rose. Considered against the gross national product, investment rose 25% by 1937 in Germany. 
The same 25% figure held true for Japan in the middle and late 30s. From 15% of GNP at the lowest point of the Great Depression in fascist Italy, annual average investment in industry rose to 19 or 20% in the years 1936 to 40. Yeah, I just, I want people to imagine, like, think about a state like you know, let's imagine the United States now, and then all the grocery stores are, are going under, and they all come to the government. The government says, "Okay, you all have to be one, and you all share the profits, but also in exchange for that, you can cut wages in half because I hate laborers anyway." Right? That's that's what they're talking about happening here. Mm-hmm. It it gets rid of some of the problems of the collapsing economy because everything gets planned out and, and run by the government anyway, and it still attacks the workers and it still keeps the wealth and control in the private hands, um, which is what, of course, strongly differentiates it from a centralized socialist economy um, where there would not be private hands owning it and the workers would benefit. Exactly. Because Italian fascism was already established when the Western capital market's banking system failed, there was a sizable amount of quasi-government ownership. The Industrial Reconstruction Institute established by the regime was quite simply a financial institution, a huge bank. It also indirectly owned or influenced large sectors of the nation's heavy industry, a further hint at an upward thrust of the middle classes to fill in sections of the traditional ruling class destroyed by the forces of the business cycle. In general, the developments and experiments in controlled capitalism resulted in concentration of economic power in the large monopolies. The crisis in German foreign exchange murdered the small businessman. Small agricultural units tended to disappear because of low wages, low consumption, and large increases in the arts of agricultural production. The necessity for government intervention increased as the interests of the private elites generated new tensions. The breakdown of the big industrial pattern into sections, the regulation or elimination of real competition except for, of course, for labor when it was short, and the control of labor organizations basically comprised the whole new fascist economic arrangement, which attempted to reduce the uh, reduce the vast strata of classes and class interests of the pre-existing state of the economy to just the two principal classes, the haves and the have-nots. I, I like how he counterposes something here where you know he talks about the workers still have to compete right again there's your marxist there right surplus um god surplus labor supply what is it called um the reserve labor army reserve labor army thank you um you know taking the reserve labor army and and kind of applying the whole you know free market idea to it it, is the workers are still competing they're just competing for scraps um and so now you can really see the three economies right you can see liberalism is it's it, it, obviously liberalism and fascism are going to be mixes of each other all the time but um liberalism overarchingly is you know free competition between these property holders and the workers lose because these guys are racing to make the most profits right fascism is state controlled uh but the workers are still fighting for scraps for the jobs while you know the rich get to own and, and be rich um and then you know socialism uh at least in a centralized economy um because again you know the exact definition of what a socialist economy as long as the means of production are owned by the workers can mean a few different things and adapt to different conditions. But as far as a centralized economy would be the government owns things and the workers are not in competition. They're guaranteed jobs. They're guaranteed the employment. This is a service for them um, as a whole, as a populace. The psychosocial dimensions of fascism become quite complex, but they can be simplified by thinking of them as a part of a collective bargaining process carried on between all the elites of the particular state, with the regime acting as the arbiter. Arbitrator, sorry. The regime's interests are subject to those of the ruling class. Labor is a partner in this arrangement. At the head of any labor organization is the fascist state. There is an elite which is tied to the interests of the regime and consequently tied also to the economic status quo. The trappings of this pseudo-mass society are empty. Cheap, spectacular leisure sports, parades where strangers meet, shout shout each other down, and often trample each other to death on the way home. Mass consumption of worthless super suds or aspirin, ritualistic ultra-nationalistic events on days to glorify the idiots who died at war, yeah, happy Memorial Day, gang, or other days to deify (laughs) those who sent them out to die. A mass society that is actually a mass jungle. All of this should sound, again, incredibly familiar to our American listeners. This is the United States. I just Uh, can't. Yep. 2AT. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many things about Nazi Germany that explicitly look to the U.S., including, you know, Liebensfrau modeling after westward expansion and the, you know, the idea that the United States was always fascist is is very, very correct. And that the, we're the closest thing to Nazi Germany is probably very correct. But in spite of all that, in spite of concentration camps at the border, in spite of, um, you know, the, the racialization of basically, you know, any ethnic minority but especially black indigenous people historically in spite of all that we're probably more like fascist italy and it is terrifying there doesn't have to be this exact allegory it could be terrifying being completely unique to some degree it is uh, we are the only true empire true global empire that's ever existed but the parallels are they just hit way too close to home they're 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 ridiculous it's almost intentional it feels like it's it is it is terrifying if you're paying attention and then unfortunately we're paying attention uh but mm-hmm. we will keep paying attention to this delightful work next week and that has been it for the week for Mark's Madness Pod. That being said, there are a number of different ways you can reach out to us. First of which is through email. Our email address is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, if you wanted to reach out to us on Twitter, where we exist, uh, our Twitter handle is at marksmadnesspod. Our DMs are open if you need us there. And linked in our Twitter bio is our Discord server, the Marks Madness Pod Discord server. It's very creatively named. Uh, and that is where we have more day-to-day interactions with people. We talk about anything and everything that's going on, uh, vent about stuff that's happening in our lives, uh, and just have a nice little community. Uh, we also watch bad TV, and then we play uh, we play Final Fantasy. We, we, we do play a lot of Final Fantasy. Um, but we also have a book club, and book club is currently working their way through... Um, uh, the selected works of Ho Chi Minh uh, that Vijay Prashad uh, edited. So they are working their way through that right now. If you wanted to jump in on that, uh, that being said, David, I believe it's time for a disclaimer. It, it is. It is. So we started this podcast all because Nathan came up to me and he wanted to read Capital. And anytime you have a work of theory, work of history, you want to read it in a group, um, preferably a group in some kind of party that you're organizing in. Um, that way you can, you know, correctly get the context, the, the understanding behind it, get different perspectives, review it, make sure you're going over it multiple times so that you can retain it. You know, it just makes the experience better and, and gives you the most out of it. So Nathan came up to me and said, okay, you've read it before. Uh, we don't have much of a group. Let's record it. Maybe we can make our group more than two. And sure enough, we did. And ever since we did, uh, what we're hoping is whatever group you are in, um, whatever party you're organizing with, um, hopefully, you know, in your political education and your reading group, you're reading these along with us. And we can be another voice, another source of input into that reading group. Let's say that's not happening. And they're either working on something that has more direct to a project they're on or is a shorter work. Hopefully, we can be that reading group. We can give you all of those benefits that having a reading group does and let's say that's not happening and you're either listening to it you know a more word for word book like this kind of enhanced ebook uh, or something with summarized more whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want these works out there guiding your action anytime you take theory and put it into revolutionary action that's a phenomenon called praxis praxis of course by definition cannot exist without theory and theory is completely useless without it they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip amen as always that being said this has been mark's madness pod my name is nathan my name's david and we will talk to you all next week bye, bye.